Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. We discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I went to Harvard, and I've been a private investigator in Boston for 20 years. My name is Laura McDonald. I work in luxury. I have deep connections to law enforcement, and murder is my hobby. And together, we are Ivy League Murders. We're going to start to record the podcast because Laura is going on and on about her hatred of Louboutins. Could you please expound, Laura? Well, they're like, they're China cabinet shoes because everybody, everybody wants them because it's like a status symbol to own them, but nobody actually wears them. So it's just a complete waste of money. Okay. Well, that was a very shortened version of the diatribe that I just got well, about I, I, I think it's silly okay. to, and then to invest more money in fixing them because they're not going to be any more comfortable fixed, putting something on the sole. <laughs> <laughs> Did you make them keep the soul red? Yes, of course. Oh my God, she's rolling her eyes right now. This is what I deal with on a daily basis, okay? But see, because the key of really wearing a Louboutin, because if you watch like in movies when people really wear Louboutins, the, the, the bottoms are always scratched. Well, yeah, I, I understand. There's no point to Louboutins. I, I completely, completely understand. You're but much better investing in... They're sexy as hell, though. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, for maybe for sex shoes, but... I, I know it's expensive sex show. <laughs> You're better off getting something at Frederick's of Hollywood. <laughs> or go like get a Ferragamo shoe, spend more money. Okay. Can we get to the podcast yeah. now, please? Okay. Okay. This is such a good case. This okay. is a good case. So freaking, I had so much fun researching this case. And this case is called Speed Demon. And for this one, we go back to Miami in the 1980s. Yeah, one of my favorite times and places. That's where you live, girl. This case is all about drug smuggling, racing Porsches, and murder. From humble beginnings, John Paul hustled his way into Harvard Business School, then Wall Street, and then turned to drug smuggling to fund his race car driving career. With his race car fame, his yacht, John Paul was a magnet for women. But he harbored a deep anger, and anyone who crossed him seemed to disappear, including two of the women he was involved with. Did the same id-fueled drive that got John Paul into Harvard, brought him wealth and fame, also fuel a murderous rage against anyone who got in his way? I got to give a huge shout out to our friend, Ava, who brought us this case. Yes, thanks, Ava. Thanks, Ava. So let's take our listeners back to Miami, 1980s. (laughs) You want them to feel the heat, smell the band of soleil. (laughs) Smell that. Well, I lived there in the late 80s. Shout out University of Miami Hurricanes, which is why I was there. They say even now that Miami is kind of a, or Florida is a lawless state. It is. It is. And so let's just multiply that by 10 or 100, Sarah, because there were just no rules. There were just no rules back then. And I think it was a very intoxicating place for so many people, especially if you were drawn to the dark side. Oh, because things were cheap and easy and accessible. So it was just a very easy place to go crazy. Yeah. And a lot of people did. 
Yep. A lot of people did. And it was just so easy to do that. It was kind of the norm. Drugs, cars, women, and everything was just there and accessible. And it was just, it was just such a wild time. And nobody thought twice of it. And violence. There was a lot of violence in Miami back then. Big time. Big time. It was kind of like the wild, wild south, I would say. Absolutely. And a lot of fun too, I might add. Yeah. And like we said, this is 1980 and Barnett. Okay, it's it's definitely a subject in this case. And Chalice Barnett was a how do we how do we waylay into she I, I think of her as somebody who would have dated Burt Reynolds. Yes. Picture her with like Farrah Fawcett hair. Okay, one of those like denim jumpsuit, jumpsuit that's platform a, shoes, it's lots a, of makeup, it's big a, hair. Right. The younger listeners might not even know who Burt Reynolds is, <laughs> but she just looks to me like she would have been in like one of the Cannonball Run movies. So with a roar of Porsche nine three growling by, I picture Chalice with Farrah Fawcett hair, cowboy boots, 80 shorts. She really was gorgeous. Like Chalice was like tall, very statuesque, very pretty. And she caught the eye of one of the drivers, which is our subject, John Paul. Now you have to understand Chalice was with her husband. Like she came with her husband, Donald Barnett to watch race car driving in Miami. And really, at about almost 200 miles an hour, John Paul roars into the finish line, winning the race. And as it turns out, wins Chalice as well, who soon ditches Donald Barnett for the ultra-fast alpha male. But Chalice chose the wrong speed demon to get tangled up with Laura. People just seemed to disappear around John Paul Sr. And so after promising to meet up with John Paul Sr., Chalice disappeared in 1981. She's not the only one who disappeared mysteriously around him. The following is the story of car racing's most notorious driver and the damage left in his wake. John Paul Sr. was born Johan Paul in 1939 in the Netherlands. And so you have to understand that the Netherlands were occupied by the Nazis from 1940 until the end of the war. And so it was like the rest of Europe and like the way my father grew up, there was nothing. People weren't like starving. They were absolutely destitute. So the Pauls came to this country with like the shirts on their back, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And even John Paul Sr. said that he would have to scrounge for food in the streets. And you really wonder if he got some of this like dog-eat-dog attitude from what it must have been like a really tough start. Oh, absolutely. It makes him getting into Harvard even more of an achievement when you look at where he came from. Absolutely. Because like the Paul family moved to Indiana in 1956 with basically the shirts on their backs. And Johan Americanized his name to John. Not a lot is known about his upbringing, except for they had a very little money. And like you said, through intelligence and drive, John Paul received a scholarship to Harvard Business School where he got a master's. That's really impressive. Very, very impressive. You know, we cover subjects, like you said, that have had the pedigree. You know, they've gone to the right prep schools. They've matriculated from the Ivies. And for him to, he's a very smart guy. You got to give him that. We cover people who've basically been almost born into it. Yes, They're going to preschool prepping to go to an Ivy. Exactly. So to come from where he came from with really none of those advantages, none of the tutors and extras and all the things that we see and to wind up there is, it's very, very impressive. Yeah, but what's up with Harvard Business School? (laughs) What's up with Harvard, Sarah? (laughs) What are they teaching there in Cambridge? (laughs) 
But Harvard Business School, we could have we could have an entire like show based on Harvard Business School. Like what the hell? It's not just boardroom tactics. I don't know what what it is mm-hmm. about Harvard Business School, I, but yeah. we've had Mangelsdorf. That was a case that we covered. We have this guy. We also have the Michael case coming up. Yeah. I think we've got a couple of others. We too, have that, several. Yeah. We have several. Well, I think that it's really, these are very, very intelligent people. And I think if you can use that for good or you can use that for bad. And when that is used for bad, you see what we're seeing here. Yeah. Some real evil. That's right. It's not clear exactly when John Paul moved to Florida, but his addiction to an adrenaline pump life and money began with smuggling drugs. So basically, John Paul started a career as a race car driver. Guys, if you don't see it, okay, Wall Street... Smuggling drugs. Legalized Um, gambling, basically. Race car driving. I think this guy's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Absolutely. And I think people have to realize in Miami in the 80s, I mean, I don't know what year it was. I'm going to say 85 and I might be wrong. Time Magazine said Miami was the most dangerous city in the country. Basically, the drug dealers were kind of running the police at that time. So it was kind of wide open down in Miami for criminals. So this was a pretty wide open place. And a lot of people did move down there to do drugs to transport drugs and as the years increased and they cracked down more and more you saw the DEA FBI coming in to crack down more and more although we all know Miami is still pretty wide open our friend Bob Starkman was there right on the firing line of all of that during the 80s right and I know I've mentioned to you that I have friends who grew up in Coconut Grove and off Key Biscayne who literally would sit out on the key and sit out on the key you know, wait and see if they could get bundles that drug smugglers dropped off their boats as the Coast Guard came in. And that would happen. And that sounds insane, but that was a reality of the 80s in Miami Yes, when they started to crack down on the drug dealers. So it really was a pretty crazy time. Well, not only that, there's a real marriage between like a cigar boat racing and race car driving and smuggling drugs. In the cigar boat racing, if you watch Cocaine Cowboys, those two dudes were like Falcone and yeah, yeah I yeah. think the marriage may be more between like a lot of money a lot of adrenaline and a lot of drugs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that might be the connection <laughs> I think you might be right anyway so his fixed change to race car driving and again he funded this through smuggling drugs which he brought his son John Paul Jr. in John Paul Jr. was like 14 his son was like 14 when he started him on race car driving and smuggling drugs yeah I see mean, this seems very unusual to you, Sarah, and maybe because I lived in Miami for so long and I knew a lot of families and different types of families. This does not strike me as unusual at all, but that he would bring his his family member in, especially somebody who's involved in that type of sport or in that type of lifestyle. It seems pretty par for the course to me. Laura is so jaded. (laughs) (laughs) I am very jaded. But together, the Paul father and son team won five consecutive races between 81 and 82. They were really amazing. These machines, these Porsche 935s, they were like outfitted Porsches for racing. So they're basically Porsches that are adapted for racing. They would go like close to 200 miles an hour. And we're talking very expensive cutting edge machines. In fact, the rarest Porsche is a, it's like a 935 street 
it's called. And it's like the rarest, most like collectible Porsche that you can buy. I don't know much about it. Actually, I'm going to have um, Cy, my, what do I call Cy? Is he my boyfriend, fiance, husband, my guy is coming on Your to guy. talk about Porsches. Okay. So that's what's happening. And John Paul and his son really rose to early fame in racing circuits such as Daytona. Sort of the, the Porsche at 200 miles an hour was really smoking every other race car on the track. Like the other cars couldn't keep up with them. So here to talk about that is Cy, Cyril Badek. Welcome, Cy. <laughs> what distinguishes the 935 from a, from a regular Porsche? In 1975, Porsche came up with the iconic uh, 911 turbo and that was a sensation Porsche was able to modify its car with a lot of aerodynamic and it gave it that fantastic look of the slant nose and a very powerful big turbo engine the outcome was they start winning a lot of races and since Porsche is being Porsche and they do whatever they want to do a company came out by the name of Kramer, and Kramer was a very good racing team. And so they they started doing a lot of modification with a slant nose and dabbling with aerodynamic, right? For our listeners, the the Porsche 35, it's got this really, it's super low to the ground. The lights are low to the ground. The nose dips down and the the wheels are wide. Roughly how fast would these these babies go? A little bit shy of 200 miles an hour. Right. Uh, 199, 198. And the company that I mentioned, Kramer, was able to dabble so much with aerodynamics so they were able to surpass that threshold and their car was doing 201 miles an hour wow wow uh, which in 1976-77 was extremely fast yeah they, i'm sure they were a, a fortune to buy the 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 nine, 935s yeah probably knowing how expensive porsches are not as expensive as ferraris and lamborghinis but uh you know the pedigree of racing was let's say a car that start dabbling with turbocharged engine which was something new in the in the mid 70s right? yeah okay you know so the, the 930 turbo was called the widowmaker because it had a massive turbo lag so the turbo kicks in so fast and a lot of people lost control of the car Oof. okay right? now that was the production car that was selling to real to customers right so it's called the widowmaker right now on a racetrack is a little bit different but the 935 per se it's all dabbling with aerodynamic a massive wing in the back really low to the ground so they have a lot of downforce and and the slant nose and it went on from 1976 1977 they won a lot of races Le Mans was one of them and then what they did instead of having one big massive turbo they changed it to two little turbo to reduce that turbo lag and being able to go even faster no I love giving the listeners sort of an, an image of this like fast powerful expensive machine in in racing what it is is what you call homologation what uh, people can take a production car and and make some modification and it can still be a street legal car yeah right but you know back then in 1977 you know fluid you know fluid airflow dynamic was something new for engineers to dabble with there wasn't the software to be able to do that so a lot of people what they end up doing is buying a factory made 935 and they were able to do their own modification as long as the door the roof 
the windshield and and the front uh, skirt remain the same the rest of the car could be modified the way they want to yeah a very wide body right uh, at that time 16 and 19 inch wheels you know 16 that's huge it's, yeah, it's yeah, massive yeah. and doing 200 miles an hour in 1977 was unheard, unheard of unheard yeah of, yeah yeah right? and extremely dangerous extremely dangerous yeah you know but, but what it is a lot of racing team what they did is end up buying the the, the car and then modifying you know to their liking and their modification and all that and that's why the car became so popular gotcha okay so that's the porsche 935 in a nutshell in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much sarah so like I said, like John Paul Sr. and Paul Jr., they had been estranged because of John Paul Sr.'s first marriage. And then you would think it would be this sort of like heartwarming father and son reunion kind of thing. Wasn't at all. His relationship to his son was very odd and like a lot of sociopaths, Laura. Paul really like used his son for his own purposes, I feel like. And like I said, John Paul Sr. funded his passion for racing by drug smuggling and also involved his teenage son. His son with another man, Christopher Schiller, and I've also read it as Christopher Schill, got caught smuggling in 1979, and both the Pauls and Schiller pled guilty to drug trafficking and were put on probation. Basically a slap on the wrist. Yeah, you know? I don't think the penalties were that hard at that time yeah. either. This is all before the war on drugs. and Yeah, well, it's only that. This was all weed. And weed is so accepted these days that we forget that back in the day, weed was like any other illegal substance. Yeah, you know? not and that long ago. Not yeah. that long ago, yeah. And Paul Sr.'s temper was legendary. He would regularly threaten to kill people who stood in his way. And in a rage one time, Laurie, he threw a full heavy, like think like really 80s chunky leather briefcase across a room, nearly like taking someone's head off. <laughs> you and I know what those 80s briefcases were like. <laughs> <laughs> I picture they it were in, like ginormous. I like, picture it in like the Playboy ad, or like, like the, the working girl, like when everyone was like taking. Anyone want to see a really good '80s movie? See Working Girl, Melanie Griffith. <laughs> see, I like Sharky's Machine, and oh. you poo-pooed that, but I thought it was great. Okay, when Paul Senior met and married Chalice Alford. John Jr. was the best man. So John Jr. is the son. John Sr. treated him more like a beta friend than a son. And I think John Jr., who actually passed away in 2020, had a very frightened, like, awe of his father. It, I kind of look at it like a filial Stockholm syndrome in some ways. <laughs> well, I think John Sr. was such a charismatic, big personality that that makes sense with yeah. the son. Yeah. That he would have this larger-than-life personality that would be hard for his son, too. They would almost envelop his son. And But also for women. I mean, he had yeah. this, like, 55-foot yacht, his race car fame, and it really was, like, catnip to women. Although, like, a lot of our sons look back, look at them and go, like, really? Okay, whatever. There's We're- such a difference culturally on, in the Northeast compared to Florida because there's such a focus here, and it's almost odd here that no matter what your age, people ask you where you went to school and talk to you a lot more about books and reading and films. And this is very... No, no one gives a crap in Miami about Nobody could give two shits in Miami. It's like, what do you drive? Where do you live? Where do you get your hair done? Where do you, exactly. <laughs> who did your Botox? And like, who are you wearing? Yeah. It's... Uh, Jace, almost fat JC Penny. 
yeah almost <laughs> fabulously shallow i i don't know how to say it like i kind of appreciate it now because it's such an escape because we go down there to get away from the seriousness of boston but uh, uh, yeah it's very very different and i can almost see paul senior really capitalizing on all of that oh, yeah absolutely because with his intelligence and his stuff yes he was really kind of the master of the universe there absolutely so chalice was born chalice alford and she was born in the panhandle of florida which is a very poor section of florida by the way but she was determined to make something of her life and we'll post some pictures of her she's very much the life of the party very pretty and she was slated for a part in burt reynolds sharky's machine like you said <laughs> I love, isn't that funny God, i didn't even yeah. realize that yeah yeah before she disappeared Chalice Paul was an airline hostess with Delta, which allowed her a view into a bigger world. Or like what they, which would be a flight attendant. Today. Flight or, or stewardess. A stewardess, yeah. yeah but they don't the, use, that's oh, not okay. PC, flight. Sarah. Oh, sorry. Flight attendant. Flight, flight attendant. Okay. Right. Chalice was very struck with John Paul, and he seemed to promise her this, like, the glamorous, like the lifestyle she was. Yeah, really he probably love-bombed her. Yeah. And she would be sadly disappointed because on her wedding night, Laura, Chalice caught John Paul Sr. in bed with another woman, like a coke dealer and like a race car groupie. And their marriage was off to a very rocky start, obviously. There was a lot of fights, but I think the straw that broke the back of the marriage was that John Paul, like, okay, I have to set this up for you. We know Chalice works for Delta. Chalice gets John Paul a a free flight Companion flight, right? Uh, no, it was like a, I don't know if they or were like together. Like a friends and or family, yeah. Yeah, she gets him a flight right on Delta. And he throws one of his famous hissy fits. And this is on a comped flight. And it must have been bad enough because it ended Chalice's career with the airline. That's bananas. Anyway, so oh, tired. humiliating. Yeah. Tired of his temper and infidelities and sickened by how he treated his son, Chalice left John Paul. So she goes back to Georgia, right? John Paul, of course, very charming, very manipulative, wants to reunite and convinces Chalice to come back. So she hops on a flight, presumably Delta, I don't Mm -hmm. know. And this is in the summer of 1981 and was never seen again. Mm. There really didn't seem to be much of an investigation into, into her disappearance. But to Chalice's friends, her disappearance just did not make sense right. at all. And actually, there's a, a a podcast called Disappeared. It's a deep dive into the disappearance of Chalice. But the only thing it does is keep Chalice's memory alive, in this case alive. I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. I, I, I listened to it and felt I got a little bit more of an idea of who Chalice was by listening to her friend talk about her. Okay. Yeah. Steve Carson was a boat captain and ran drugs for John Paul. So after getting caught with a boat full of marijuana, Carson ended up doing some time. John Paul Sr. thought Carson was going to go to the feds and rat on him. So one night, John Paul surprised Carson and shot him five times, leaving him for dead. Yeah, John Paul just does not take anyone who crosses him. Anyone who crosses him. Yeah, I mean, just cold-bloodedly right. you know, shoots to kill. Bye. John Paul gets convicted of attempted murder. He escaped to Switzerland. And then 
in Switzerland, he's apprehended. But this amazes me because he doesn't do a lot of time for this. Well, he served 13 years yeah. at Leavenworth. It's long enough. That's hard. That's that's hard time. So. Five shots. I, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. And apparently at Leavenworth, he tried to escape by squirting a guard in the eye with a combination of hot sauce and, and cleaning product. <laughs> no, no. How does that get you out? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not sure. But there were other people besides Carson who worked with John Paul Sr. who disappeared. There's another guy named David Casorla. I've also read it as Casoria. There's there's a lot to this case, Laura, and there's actually another person I can't think of their name. But th- this is a case where I really wish, like, no, it's an older case, but I wish the authorities would really get into this and, like, start digging through some of these disappearances. Because I feel like these disappearances are treated like these little separate things. Right. There's no lines drawn between the dots kind of thing. Or what we really need is a journalist who just wants to do a a book on this and totally deep dive because there is no book on this case. That's true. Or we could do a show on it. I know, but this would be a great book if somebody wanted to really go into this because there's there's so much information out there. And there is, but researching this was let me tell you, it was a total challenge. Yeah, it's hard. And it, it's all, like, I mean... I had to dig through, like, racing magazines mm. and stuff like that. So after he got out of Leavenworth, John Paul Sr. lived with his son, John Paul Jr. By this time, his car racing was, was in his past. And I'm not really even sure what he was doing professionally or what have you, but probably living off weed money, but, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, digging you know. up that money he buried <laughs> in years past. Would you? Yeah. <laughs> Hanging out on Key Biscayne, waiting yeah. for bundles. I'd be down with some fresh seafood after yeah. 13 years in Leavenworth. So Colleen Wood was 50 when she moved to Boca from Dayton, Ohio. It was really a new beginning for her, and she got a job working at the Lighthouse Point Marina. One night, an intriguing personal ad caught her eye. It was a chance at romance and a whirlwind trip around the world on a 55-foot yacht. Colleen was into adventure at this point in her life, and she thought, why not? So she answered the personal ad. So he's obviously out there doing personal ads because this is pre-internet dating. He's looking in Boca, which is an affluent area, looking for a woman in Boca. And and so the man she met had a Harvard MBA, had a yacht, seemed to have money. He had race car fame, and they really quickly fell in love. Right? Of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that this is John Paul Sr. that she's met, of course. Bad news. So Colleen sold her place for 43000 This is in the 2000s. 43000 Please. With, I wonder, you know, yeah. No going back there. Not in Boca. No. <laughs> and gave the money to John Paul to invest. Bad <laughs> idea. So she was very smart about it. Yeah. So Maureen. Don't give the guy you're going away with all the money from your house. <laughs> So Maureen, she was her boss at the marina, thought that Colleen was like taking it way too fast yeah, with this guy. Bit, yeah. But Colleen was in love, right? You know? And so this was December of 2000. Colleen called Maureen and told her that she was going on a trip with John Paul, but that she would be back for the Christmas party at the marina. So the Christmas party came and went and no Colleen. And, you know, at first people were like, okay, maybe she's like kind of going off in this adventure and maybe sure. it got longer. No one heard from her. Her son didn't hear from her. So 
her son, Michael Tandrich, started getting really alarmed. And he tried reaching out to her only to find that her phone was turned off. So Michael, her son, calls the police and the FBI to report Colleen missing. Michael also called John Paul, who claimed that Colleen and he had a fight about money and that she'd come to the boat with an ex-football player to pick up her stuff, that they broke up and everything like that. Also, John Paul's story about Colleen would change several times. And we know this about the truth, right? It never changes. Absolutely. Yep. So when Michael did an internet search, he turned up some disturbing information on John Paul. Imagine that, like, this guy is dating your mom, right? And then you do an internet search, 13 years, Leavenworth attempted Uh. drug smuggling. Uh, Yeah, people, you know, I mean, can you imagine? It'd be horrifying. That's why you you want to hire someone like Sarah and do the searches before you go on the trip. Please. Yes. Please You hire the PI first. Yes. Find out he went to Leavenworth and don't go on the trip. Yes, that's right. Although Colleen was missing, there was a money trail for 38000 that was withdrawn from her bank account. And these withdrawals, they were made by two different women, other than they were not Colleen, and they all led back to John Paul oh, Sr. of course, yeah. yeah. So when the Fort Lauderdale police finally tracked down John Paul, he nervously gave them yet another story that Colleen owed him money and that they'd had a falling out. And that, no, he hadn't seen her since then. And so... It was really John Paul's lack of concern about Colleen's whereabouts and also his nervousness that made the investigators suspicious. But without a body, they really couldn't arrest John Paul. So he skipped town and has not resurfaced since. So they were kind of building a case uh, about him and he just takes off and has not been seen. See, this this is crazy to me yeah. because he's been missing how long? 30 years? 23 years. Right, and, and, we, and we are just... I mean, had it not been for Ava, we wouldn't know about this case. I mean, why are we not all hearing? I mean, this man is probably, he could be a granddad out there somewhere in in Europe. I mean, he could be living his life. Nobody knows. I I guess there have been some sightings of him that I guess in the years that followed Colleen's disappearance, there there have been sightings of him. Though whether they're credible or not, I don't know. That kind of remains another mystery. There's always sightings. So he would be in his 80s now. Is he responsible for this or can he provide any information about the people who seem to disappear around him? I don't know. And why has there not been more coverage? Yeah, on this that's case? what amazes me is that there hasn't been more coverage. There hasn't been, I mean, this big search to find him, to get more answers. Yeah. And what it strikes me if I hate to indict anybody without solid evidence but what strikes me about this i thought we only had one ivy league serial killer and that's michael bruce ross right from cornell Mm -hmm. but if these disappearances go back to john paul senior he is actually another one he is actually another ivy league serial killer what about ted kaczynski do we consider him a serial killer or more of a that's um, a mass murder a mass murder yeah yeah Yeah. which is a very obviously a very fine line fine line the difference is a serial killer is like somebody who I guess in some ways, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's that's an interesting thing with Kaczynski. I, I think of him more as a, of a, like, a mass murderer. Me too. Because they're, than, yeah, because, yeah. right, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Not that it makes a big difference. It's the same 
it's the same sick, you know, same sick fountain of right. evil that it comes right. from. So, you know. Absolutely. But it's very interesting. And I don't think this is a case that we should let go of. I think it's a case we should maybe look into a little more and see who's still around because it is interesting. It is. Yeah, it, it really is a fascinating case. And uh, okay, well, we're going to go and I guess talk about Louboutins again and, and argue that point. And what bad investment they are. <laughs> murder, murder.